we've noted that the book of Hebrews is a book that is intended as a sermon of encouragement. Uh, The writer is speaking to those who are going through difficulties. They're going through hardships. Uh, Life is not easy for them for the cause of Christ. And so everything that this uh, preacher, if you will, uh, proclaims is intended to build them up. And when we started our study uh, of Hebrews earlier this year, we talked about how the idea that he offers throughout this book of where we would get our encouragement, our endurance and strength is by having a greater vision of Jesus. The more we come to understand him and the greater depth of knowledge that we have of him, the greater ease for us to be able to endure the challenges of life. And that's what we see here really in chapter 2 as we were kind of breaking down the book. The chapter 2 offers really two different pictures of the help that is given to us. In fact, you can notice at the very end of chapter 2, he speaks of that he's able to help those who are being tempted. This is summing up where he's, where he's going in this chapter. Chapter 1 verse 14 ended with these angels are sent to serve those who are to inherit salvation. Chapter 2 is all about a help that we have given to us by God. And in this lesson, we're going to notice in chapter in chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, that what we are seeing here is that the help that we have is the knowledge that we are a part of God's family. I want you to notice how amazing this declaration is and what the, the writer speaks about in regards to our relationship to the Father and to Jesus. I, I, I will tell you before we get into it, It's startling, and if you are like me, what you will read is going to feel uncomfortable. But it is what it says. It's just just startling, the change of relationship that we have with the Father and with the Son. Notice verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist... In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Notice the purpose of God is declared right here. In bringing many sons to glory. This is the goal. This is the object. If I had half an hour, I'd kick back into verses uh, 5 through 9, where remember we have this picture given to us that all things have been put under our feet, but we do not see this dominion and this glory that we possess as humans. We've wrecked that because of sins, but we do see Jesus who made a little lower than the angels is crowned with glory and honor and is exalted. Now in keying off of that, he says, now in the same way there is a purpose in what God is accomplishing for us and he is bringing many sons to glory and I'm going to stay with the word sons because I think that's actually important here I am all about when the text demands for it to be more gender neutral and speak of men and women and obviously this is not speaking about males but the use of sons here is very important Because think about what we have read about from chapter 1 through to the middle of chapter 2. We've only seen only one person called a son. And that's Jesus. Over and over again, that's his title. 
And there was that designation of Jesus as son meant special relationship is given to him. He enjoys a privileged place, a privileged position before God as son. We spent a lot of time in chapter one going over that. Now think about as he has done that with Jesus, he now for the first time kicks in here and says, and in bringing many sons to glory, there is an equal connection being made. It's not just simply that you're children of God, true, you know, sons and daughters and children of God, as a lot of the translations read, but it's missing the status It's missing the idea that just as what Jesus went through establishes Him as Son, so we have to go through similarly to be brought into glory as sons like Him. That's what I think is absolutely beautiful about what is happening here is in chapter 2, verse 9, how was Jesus brought into glory? Well, He tasted death, He suffered, and then was raised up and brought into that position. And now what is God doing but bringing us as sons? There is an establishment of a special picture, a special status that we possess that he is trying to establish here in these verses. In fact, you will watch as we go through these verses, he is going to connect this very strongly so that we will see this equal privilege and equal place with the son himself, which I told you I'm going to be startling today, but that's what the text says. Notice as he says it there in verse 10, he says, Now it was fitting that for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their faith perfect through suffering. Notice the message that is given here. It is a picture that it is through suffering That we're made complete. And it's through suffering that this perfecting happens. And that's what's described here of Jesus, that it was fitting that he by whom all, by whom, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder, notice it should make the founder of their salvation perfect. Now people struggle with that. How are we making Jesus perfect? He's going to make him perfect. But hopefully back in chapter 1 we've already jumped over a lot of those obstacles because remember in chapter 1 there were all of these declarations about everything Jesus became. He was appointed heir of all things. He had become as much superior to angels because he had inherited a name. There was all of this achieving of status. That's what we talked about with sonship. By what he suffered, by what he endured, he obtains the status as son and inherits a greater name. He is appointed heir of all things and he is much superior than to angels. So it's not that Jesus is not perfect. This is not talking about it in a more Moral sense. That's, we have to kind of, when we start talking about perfect, I think the only thing we have the tendency to think about is moral. You know, you're perfect or you're not in a moral sense. And that's not what the writer of Hebrews is speaking about. What he's speaking about is Jesus had to experience suffering in order to qualify for the office that he was going to possess. 
He had to become human and experience suffering so that he could properly qualify for the position that he is going to receive. In the future of Hebrews, he will speak to that as being high priest. He must become human and suffer to be a faithful high priest. We'll get there. But chapter 1, what was it? To be son. That's what chapter 1 was about. The exerting of him to the office of son. Thus, notice verse 9 or verse 10, he says, It is fitting. You can't buzz by that phrase. This was appropriate. It is appropriate. This is the way to equip the Savior to come to the task and into the office of being the faithful high priest and son that we need to bring us to glory. It's fitting that suffering is the mechanism for that. That's important to underline. We're talking all this year about the cross. Why the cross? Why did it have to be that? Notice we're already getting some pictures of that. Suffering is part of coming to glory. Jesus could not come to the earth, live a nice life, experience no suffering, die of natural causes as he falls asleep one night, and think that he could detain the position of faithful high priest and son. It's not going to work. It is appropriate, it is fitting... That he's perfected through suffering. Suffering is the perfecting process. Which then, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is, remember, these Christians are suffering themselves. He's making a connection here. That if suffering is what it takes for Jesus to be perfected, not in a moral sense but in the ability to become high priest and son, to properly fulfill that role, then for us to be sons who are brought to glory must walk the same path. And in fact, that's really where he's going with all of this. Notice verse 10, that he should make him the founder of their salvation. And speaking of Christ, what a picture. Here is the founder of our salvation. If you have any translation besides the ESV, it reads something different. And whatever translation you have reads different than everybody else's in the room because every translation has a different reading on this Greek word because it was used a number of different ways. What are you talking about? The founder of their salvation. This Greek word was used to speak of somebody who was a leader of a family. It was used of somebody who would go about founding cities. It was used of somebody who would be a pioneer and a trailblazer. It was used of somebody who was a champion who would fight on behalf of a nation. I submit to you take all of those and just dump them into the word right here about what this is referring to regarding Christ. And they would make a really lengthy translation if you put all of those into sentence. But that's the idea. He is the founder of our salvation, the leader of our salvation, the champion of our salvation, the trailblazer and pioneer of our salvation. He incorporates all of those things because He's leading us to glory. He establishes that ability. He is the trailblazer to lead us to that. He founds that salvation and that champion image I really love. I really love that. He is the one who goes and fights for us and brings about the victory. The echoes of David and Goliath overtone this right here. Is here is the one who wins the victory while we sit on the sidelines unable to do anything. 
Here is our champion. That, that's what he's, he's getting at here is here is Christ and his purpose is to bring us to glory through his own suffering. What he experienced makes it possible And we are going to walk in the very same path that he walks. In fact, that's what you see in verse 11. For he who sanctifies, he who makes holy, and those who are sanctified, those are who are being made holy, all have one, and there's not a word after that. I know your Bible put one there, but there's nothing there, which... In English, doesn't work. You can't say they all have one, and then I stop at a period there. They're all of one. They're all from one. They all have one. And almost all the translations also guess now all have one what? <laughs> all, all are of what? All are from what? Well, I think the context for me, the most likely idea is that, that we're all have one father and some translations read that way some say of one family and that's because there's this connection that's being made that verse 10 connects by saying now we're called sons notice the connection he's son and we're sons therefore we have the same father and in fact verse 11 validates that that is why he's not ashamed to call them what brothers because we have the same father we're in the same family. We're all one together. Now, that statement in and of itself is crazy, right? It, we're brothers with him because we have the same father. I read that and I think, that's not right. You, we're servants. We're nothing. He's the king and we are just happy to be in the room somewhere. That, and I think that's the right idea. But notice what God is doing in saying, I want you to have courage and I want you to have endurance. And I want you to see the relationship that you have with the father and with the son. That you're not just merely some children of God, but you are placed on equal footing. That Christ is described as brother. We're sons together in the house of God, sharing God as our Father. Now, I would be embarrassed by that. How am I in here in the same place on equal footing with the same privilege and same position and same glory and honor? That can't be, but notice what he says in verse 11. Jesus is not ashamed of that. And my mind's blown by that idea. That we do not have Jesus looking at us as if we are charity cases, hopeless causes, or pitiful victims. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. That's how he looks at us. He does not look at us and go, oh, those people. What is the matter with them? Don't you know? There's something so beautiful here that what Jesus does through his sufferings is so radically changes the relationship. 
us to the Father and us to Him. That there is a picture here of Jesus saying, I'm not ashamed to call them brothers. God comes down at a significant cost to Himself so that we can be into this position, that we can have this privilege to be able to enjoy all the blessings of what it means for God to be Father and for Jesus to be a brother. And I think the writer of Hebrews understands the challenge of which he's writing this. Because you will notice in verses 12 and 13, there are three quotations from the Old Testament proving that we are brothers with Jesus and He's not ashamed of us. That's the whole goal of those three quotes. Because I think if you left it there, we would read this and we would say, wow, I'm having a really hard time with that idea. I'm okay with Jesus as King and me as servant. But Jesus is brother. And He's not ashamed of that. Okay, prove that. And that's what he does. Verse 12, here's his proof. Proof 1, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Now, if you were with us Wednesday night, this will click in really nicely because this comes out of Psalm 22 also. And Psalm 22 is a vivid messianic prophecy. And notice what the writer does is he puts the words of Psalm 22 in his mouth. Recall that Psalm 22 is the prayer of a righteous sufferer who ultimately becomes vindicated and rescued by God. In fact, I'll give you the full quotation. The verse right before this quote in verse 21 of Psalm 22, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now the quote, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you in the words of Jesus. Here is him proclaiming the message of praise and victory and rescue. He says, The Lord has rescued me. He has vindicated me. He has brought me salvation. And I will proclaim that to my brothers. Now who are Jesus' brothers is essentially what the writer of Hebrews is posing to us. Us. That's what he's trying to prove. That in the very mouth of the person, this messianic psalm, That Jesus is saying these very words is that He was not abandoned by the Lord and praises that very idea and is inviting then all of the brothers, all of us, brothers and sisters together to enjoy that very invitation. God did not forsake Him, but instead vindicated Him. And you are suffering. You are going through difficulty. And He's not going to abandon you either. And how do you know that? Because Jesus is not ashamed to call you a brother. Because what happens to one son happens to all sons. And Jesus is not ashamed of that. That's what's so amazing about this is that you see Jesus not hesitating in the slightest to call all of us part of His family. He's going, yeah, these are my brothers. These are my brothers and sisters. They're all equally with me. We're all sons together and enjoying the great privilege of what that means. 
And so victory that comes to Jesus comes to us. Glory that comes to Jesus comes to us. All the blessings that come to Jesus come to us. Second quote to prove it comes from Isaiah, verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in Him. This is exactly what you see Jesus doing on the cross, by the way. He does this all of His life, of course. But it's absolutely coming out of the mouth of Jesus on the cross. And He's entrusting Himself to the One who judges justly, is what the Apostle Peter argued in his first letter. That what did He do? Did He revile in return? No, He did not. What did He do? He entrusts Himself to the One who would vindicate, the One who would judge. That's what Jesus does. Here is the writer of Hebrews using Isaiah and saying that here He will trust in Him. And He was not put to shame by doing so, was He? Was Jesus put to shame by trusting in the Father for rescue and vindication? Resurrection from the dead shows that His hope and His trust was not unfounded. And His hope is our hope. And the reason He trusts in God is the same reason we trust in God. Third quotation, also staggering, And again, which comes from Isaiah 8, verse 18, Behold, I and the children God has given me. I, here's Jesus speaking, I and the children God has given me. You are seeing this beautiful picture of family relationship, this beautiful picture of us being joined together and the victory that comes from the fact that what happened to Jesus happens to us and we share in that very glory. In Isaiah chapter 8, the idea is not, behold, here's me and God has rescued me, but what Jesus does is brings us along with Him. I and the children you've given me are enjoying the glory and honor. You see how the writer of Hebrews is proving that Jesus is absolutely not ashamed to call us brothers. I want to just do two applications from this. Where do you stop? In, it, 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 it's so hard to find a stopping point in a sermon. You will notice every sentence in the book of Hebrews starts with four. So, I mean, now America's proven that we can sit for three hours, so we can go for quite a, quite a few. I got another two hours and 30 minutes, right? <laughs> I'll stop. Two applications. Number one, here's the writer of Hebrews making the point that suffering is fitting. Suffering is appropriate. Friends, if it was fitting for Jesus to be perfected through what he suffered, and the idea is so that he would be designated as son and as high priest then it is also fitting for us to be perfected through what we suffer so that we can be sons of God as well. That's one of the key things the writer of Hebrews wants you to see. If it was appropriate for the son to suffer so that he could obtain the status of high priest and son, then what do you suppose will be fitting for us to experience so that we can be many sons who are brought to glory. Suffering. It's going to be the same track. 
which I think should help when it comes to suffering because sometimes I think the reason we have difficulty with suffering is because I think we have the tendency to look at it as something that is outside of God's cosmic plan. When we suffer, I think our knee-jerk reaction is something's going wrong. This isn't right. And notice the writer of Hebrews says, no, it's appropriate. It is right. It is fitting in bringing many sons to glory. That's how that has to happen. Is it's going to be through difficulty. This is what we see poured throughout all of the scriptures. Through the book of Job, the book of James, the book of 1 Peter. It is throughout all the scriptures the necessity of suffering to come to glory. Why would the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts to brand new Christians go back through all the churches and encourage them by saying, through many tribulations you must enter the kingdom of God? They're like, that's your sermon, Paul? Where's the encouraging word in that? Oh, it's very encouraging. Because it puts a proper lens on suffering. Suffering is not out of the ordinary. Something hasn't gone wrong when you're going through trials and temptations and difficulties and challenges for being a Christian. Nothing has gone wrong. In fact, it's appropriate and fitting. That's what he's trying to get us to see. Ultimately, then, we need to think about our suffering in this light. God allows suffering to perfect us as his children so that we can be brought to glory. Why is there so much suffering? Why are you going through such terrible things? Why would God do that? Why would God allow all that? God is sovereign over suffering. See that clearly in the book of Job. So why does God do it? Because the goal is to bring us to glory. The book of Job is so phenomenal with that challenge. Satan's challenge is so accurate. People only serve God because you do good to them, God. That's his challenge. The only reason people serve you, the only reason people are righteous like Job, is because you bless them. And you put a hedge around them. And if you would just take away all that they have and tear that hedge down, there would be nobody who would serve you. That's the challenge. It's a question we have to answer ourselves. And the only way it can be proven and shown is that we go through suffering too. To be brought to glory requires going through suffering. If we think that Jesus would be the only one and not us as his disciples, then we're misunderstanding what life is about. For us to be brought to glory means that suffering is appropriate. And number two, don't give up number one because suffering is appropriate. There's nothing that's gone wrong in your life. And number two, do not give up because Jesus is not ashamed of you. 
I don't know if there's more encouraging words than that. I'll probably disagree with myself and show you next week there's something even more encouraging. But this is unbelievable. To me, this statement is absolutely jaw-dropping and absolutely stunning. And I would ask for each of ourselves just to consider, how do you view your relationship with God? And I think sometimes what we do when we look at our relationship with God is the reason we give up is because we look at the relationship and we say, I have messed up too much. Uh, My sins are too great. My sins are too numerous. I cannot endure these trials anymore. Life is too hard and I simply cannot do it. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't quit because of that. Jesus has not let go of you. He's not ashamed of you. I just... In fact, I think we could rightly argue. Jesus didn't come because you were perfect, but because He knew full well you weren't. We want to give up under the weight of sins. I think Jesus comes along and says, why do you think I came? Why the whole reason I came was for this. Not ashamed of you. That's why I came for you. Not ashamed to call you. I came to help you. I am the help that you need. He's not ashamed of us. He's won the victory for us. He's not ashamed to have you part of His family, to call you a brother or sister. There is no sin that you have done where God goes, well, that one was one too many. You know, one million and one, that's when you cross the line and I can't have you anymore. Or that sin was so bad, that one was just far past the line. There's nothing that is true in regards to the grace of God like that. He is not ashamed to have us to be his brothers and sisters joined with him so that we can be sons of God. But I want you to think about the reality of this for a minute. If Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, then how could we possibly be ashamed of him? And I hope that smacks hard in the face. Because as mind-blowing as it is that Jesus is in the heavenly places going, no, no, I'm not ashamed to call them my brothers. They're right there with me. They're children. We're all together. Sons of God together. One source, one Father, one family joined all as one. But are you ashamed of Him? He's not ashamed of you. And I think it's so important that we then realize that we would not give up. That we would not lose heart. That we would not be ashamed of our Savior. That we would start fresh with Him. Making the changes that we need to make in our lives that shows that we are not ashamed of Him. We live and breathe because of Him. And the reason we have this relationship that we enjoy is because of Him. Because He suffered. And His whole purpose was to bring us as sons to glory. That's why He did it. Now what will we do about that?
Will we live appreciating then what Jesus has done for us to establish this relationship to enjoy God as our Father, Christ our brother, and the status of sons belonging in the family of Christ? Or will we still live for self in the empty, vain ways of this life? As we sing this invitation song, I just want you to think about what Jesus has done for you. I wish I could keep going. The writer's not done. Verse 14 is going to make a whole point about this now. Next week. (laughs) Next week. Make a whole other big point about this idea. But you have to grapple with this reality. He's not ashamed. So why don't you come to him and be joined in the family of God and enjoy all there is in the rich blessings. He's not ashamed of your sins. He came and died for your sins so that you can be in his family. Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?